like most of you guys, um, I start out the year each year kind of looking back on the year that I've just been through and then kind of looking forward to what I want this year to look like. And whenever you look forward into the year that's coming, it it, it requires some change of you often. It requires something that you need to tweak. And so we all have goals usually going into a new year, whether it's related to, to fitness or health or our jobs or our families or whatever it might be. And so a couple weeks ago, I was kind of looking at some areas that I wanted to change in my life. And a lot of them fell into kind of those categories those categories that we all kind of find ourselves wanting to improve. I, I want to find myself in the gym a little more this year, which means I just want to find myself in the gym at all this year. So that's actually a pretty simple one. That's a pretty simple one, because if I'm there at all, I'm ahead of last year. And, and so I, I want to find myself, and, and, and you see it this time of year, like the gym is packed. I was at Publix the other day checking out, and it looked like everybody's carts, like all of a sudden, everybody's a vegetarian. Like it's just full fruits, vegetables, everybody's carts are looking good. But this year, I, I have a goal that's kind of different than any other goal that I've had in years past. And as I was looking, maybe it was because I was coming off of the Christmas season and, and the season of giving and just some things I observed in that season. But this year, I said, I want to have a goal this year of being a better gift giver. I want to be a better gift giver this year. And I don't think I'm a bad gift giver, but, but I want to be a better gift giver. Have you ever had someone in your life that's just a great gift giver? There's kind of a difference between like a really great gift that, that you wanted, that you knew that you wanted, and then there's this other category of gift that sometimes you get that like you didn't even know or realize you wanted it. You didn't even think it was on your radar, and there's someone that gives you that gift, and it's like as soon as you open it, you're like, of course. How did I not think of this? And that's the category of gift giver that I want to be in. Last year for my birthday, my friends, Caleb and Jen, they gave me an AirTag and I don't know if you know what an AirTag is, but you can put it on anything and your phone will help you find it. And they gave it to me because I spend a lot of time looking for my keys before I go anywhere. And so before I leave the house in the morning, I'm like frantically looking for my keys and then I get to work. And somehow when it's time to leave for work, I can't find my keys to get home. And so they gave me an AirTag and it's changed my life. I know that sounds like an overstatement about such a small thing, but it has changed my life. Because now when I can't find my keys, I just pull up an app and it takes me straight to my keys. It's incredible. Two Christmases ago, my daughter, Sophia, I've told you before, she's a great gift giver. She's only 10 years old, but she's an incredible gift giver. And two years ago, her and her older sister, Bella, they came to me and Kristen and they said, we want to get you and mom Christmas gifts this year. Like we're old enough. We want to pick it out. We want to do it. So we said, okay, well, what we'll do is like, we'll draw and one of you will get mom, one of you will get dad, and then whoever you didn't get will take you to shop for the other person. And, and so we were sitting there and we put our names in this little jar and Sophia pulls it out and she says, I got dad, I know what I'm getting. And I was fascinated by this because I was like, what could she possibly that quickly? Like no thought. She's like, I got dad, I know what I'm getting. And all Christmas, she was like, I know what I'm getting you. I'm so excited about what I'm getting you. You are going to love it. You are going to love what I'm getting you. And so Christmas morning comes around. And, and as a parent, there are like these moments that are etched in your brain of your kids. I can literally still see her face carrying this giant box, like 10 times her size with this huge grin on her face. And she's coming and she's so excited. And I open it. I take the wrapping off. I open the box. And in the box is a gray blanket, a gray blanket. And I was like, this is great. This is fantastic. But it just, in my mind, I was like, why did she immediately think of this when she knew she got me? Why did she immediately go to like gray blanket? Got it. 
And I was like, oh, babe, this is great. I'm so excited. And she was like, do you know why I got you this? And I was like, why? Because I didn't. And she was like, she was like, I, I, that blanket that you just opened, that blanket, it's the exact same as my pink sloth blanket, but in a boy color. And, and she's like, I, I noticed every time we watch a movie, every time you watch a football game, anytime it's even slightly cold and you want a blanket on the couch, you go in my room and you get that blanket and you use that blanket. And she was like, so I knew you must really like that blanket. So I got you the same blanket, but in a boy color. And it was brilliant. I used the blanket all the time. I would have never thought of it. It would have never been on my list, but she saw that I needed it and she got it for me. And this is as I've kind of worked backwards to what makes a great gift giver. One of the key elements to being a great gift giver is that a great gift giver sees something in you that you didn't see in yourself. They see a need that you have that, that you didn't really pay any attention to. It should have been obvious. It should have been obvious that I spend an absorbent amount of time walking around my house looking for my keys. It should have been obvious that I was walking into her room and taking that blanket every opportunity I got, but I just never thought about it. But because those are perceptive people who saw these things in my life, they were able to give me a great gift. And the story of Joseph, which is the story that we're in right now as a church, you know, when we think of the story of Joseph, we think of Joseph's dream. What we think of the dream that he had, we think of going after our dreams. But the truth is that Joseph's story doesn't begin with a dream. It begins with a gift. That one of the very first things the Bible tells us about Joseph is that his father so highly favored him that he gave him a gift. He gave him this, this coat that the Bible describes as greatly ornamented and of great color. Now, we immediately know that this gift would have been quite valuable at this time because people didn't go out of their way to have a lot of color or ornament in their garments because of the type of work that they did and the type of life that they lived. And so a garment like that would usually be reserved for probably someone who was in some sort of leadership and some sort of royalty. And I think that Joseph's dad gave him this gift because he saw something in Joseph that Joseph didn't yet see in himself. He saw something in him that he didn't quite see in himself. See, we know early on in the stories that Joseph's brothers are enraged and jealous of Joseph because he is clearly the favorite. He is clearly the favorite son. And this gift, this coat of many colors, just secures what they already know, which is that Joseph is dad's favorite. But see, this gift would have said a lot more to those brothers than just he is the favorite. This gift would have been a lot more than just a valuable gift that one person got and they didn't. This would have been a lot more of an indication of what their lives were going to look like compared to Joseph's life. Because this coat of many colors that was given to Joseph was not just valuable, it was an indication. Because this was not a coat that Joseph was going to be working in the fields in. This was not a coat that Joseph was going to be farming in. This was not a coat that Joseph was going to be tending sheep in. See, when, when Joseph unwrapped that coat, when he put that coat on, not only did his brothers see something valuable that they did not have, they saw that they were going to be one man down when they were working in the fields. They saw that they were going to be one man down when they were tending sheep because you don't tend sheep and you don't garden in a coat like that. They knew suddenly, hey, this gift says a lot more about Joseph and about his relationship with our father than we realize. And we, we know that this is true based solely on the fact that he received this gift, this coat of many colors. But then when we pick up the story and we, we find Joseph's brothers out in the field, sure enough, Joseph is not with them. 
In Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 12, it says this. It says, Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Now, Notice this dynamic for a moment, but not only is Joseph not in the fields working with his brothers, he's at home with his fathers. They're out in the heat tending sheep. They're out in the dirt. They're out in the grime. And now Joseph's dad is going to send Joseph to check in on them. Listen, this is not a good moment for the brothers and for Joseph. Nobody likes to be checked in on in the first place. Like they're out there tending sheep. They're out there doing what they always did. And now someone who doesn't even tend sheep, someone who doesn't even do what they do is going to come and check in on them. So their jealousy and their rage was at a new level. And you can see it again in verse 19. When the brothers see Joseph coming, they say, here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, it's, it's clear that this tension between Joseph and these brothers has gone on for a very long time because their first thought when they saw him from a distance was, let's kill him. That's a pretty harsh response. Well, what you'll find when you start to follow the dream that God has for your life is that jealousy will often bring out the harshest responses from your critics. Jealousy will often bring out the harshest responses. You, you think everybody is in your corner. You think everybody is on your side, but then you decide to leave that job to chase that dream that God's put on your heart. You decide to leave that position behind. Suddenly, everybody who's still there, suddenly everybody else who's still in that job and still in that position is like, what, you think you're better than me? You think you don't? You think you don't need this job? You think you can just leave? You think you can just chase this dream? This is the posture we've seen from Joseph's brothers throughout the entire story. When they first hear of Joseph's dream, they say, do you think we'll actually bow down to you? And now in this moment, they say, here comes that dreamer. Here he comes. Let's kill him and throw him in one of these cisterns. See, the best way for someone to stop your dream is to stop you. It's not always that they will attack your dream. It's not always that they will attack the, the plan that you have. So often they will actually attack you. Let's kill him and let's throw him in one of these cisterns. Now, one of the brothers kind of talks them out of this killing. He talks them off the ledge. And he's like, listen, let's just throw him in the cistern. Let's just go with that part first. And then, then we'll revisit what we want to do with him. And so they throw him into a cistern. The Bible says that the first thing they do is they strip him of his coat and throw him in the cistern. Suddenly, he's, he's in a pit. This was a totally normal day for Joseph up until this point. He was chilling with his dad. They were back at the house. The brothers were out farming and tending sheep, and he's just on his way to check in on them. And then suddenly, he finds himself in a pit. I don't know if you've ever had one of those days that was totally normal until it wasn't. It was totally fine until suddenly you found yourself in a pit. A week before Father's Day this year, we were, we were all just out and we were playing in our backyard and we were having a great time. And literally, it was one of those nights that I literally was just looking around thinking, this is a fantastic night. Everything is going perfectly. We were playing in the pool. We were playing in the backyard. We were doing all these different things. And, and 
we were kind of playing around in the pool, and my daughter, Sophia, I was in the pool, and she said, just out of nowhere, she said, hey, Dad, look at this. And the next thing I knew, she had slipped and fell and face-planted on the side of our, uh, on, on our concrete. And it was one of those moments and one of those sounds that you just knew, this is not good. And she didn't get her hands out from under her at all, and she looked up at me terrified after hitting the pavement. And all I can describe to you is this is something that a parent would never want to see, but I can just tell you, it looked as though her face was literally crooked. Like something was off immediately, and I looked at my wife, and we were like, what in the world is this? So we ran her inside, and we get her in the bath. We open her mouth, and her teeth are just missing and shrouded and gone, and her nose is all crinkled up. So we rush her to the hospital, and we get to the hospital. We find out that, that her, her uh, jaw above her teeth has been broken, and it's changed the shape of her nose, and she goes in for emergency surgery to have her nose reset. And this starts like a six-month period of just getting her back to kind of of how she used to look. Now, everything's fine, and I, I joke with her now that we moved to Sarasota, and she becomes bougie and gets a nose job in veneers. <laughs> because, because she's the only one in our family that has like a perfect nose and great teeth, and I'm like, hey, you know, at the end of the day, good for you. But it, it was one of those days where literally everything was fine, but then all of a sudden we found ourselves in a pit. We found ourselves in this moment where the unthinkable had happened, where the next six months of our lives could looked completely different than we expected them to look. And the truth is, it's always like that because you never anticipate the pit. You never anticipate the moment where you find yourself in that place. You never anticipate it. And often in life, it's like that where it's just right after you feel as though you've got some momentum that you find yourself in the pit. Like suddenly you found some margin in your life, you, you've got some money in the bank, and then the car breaks down, and it's worse than you thought. It's always in these moments where you feel like you have some sense of momentum, you feel like everything is finally back to normal, and then suddenly you find yourself in a pit. If you don't feel like you can relate to being in a pit, let me just describe for you the, the, the scene that Joseph was in. This pit was, was dark. He had no control he had lost all sense of his identity. They had stripped him from the coat that reminded everyone that he was the favored son. And so maybe you've never found yourself literally in a pit, but I'm sure that you found yourself on a day that felt dark, on a day that felt vulnerable, on a day that felt like you had lost all sense of your identity. Everyone can relate to those moments where it feels as though you have no control. And then as Joseph is lying in this pit, his brothers are conspiring of what they're going to do next with him. And so they decide that instead of killing him, they'll just pretend like he died. They'll make his father think that he died, but they'll just sell him into slavery. By the way, people are always willing to benefit from the moment that you're down in the pit. People are always willing to look at that moment and see how maybe they can benefit from it. And that's what his brothers do in this moment. And so they decide to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And he's taken into Egypt and he ends up in the home of a man named Potiphar who works for the king kind of a few positions removed. And we find him in the house of Potiphar living as a slave in Genesis chapter 39, verse two, it says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, I want you to notice the language within those verses. Joseph prospered. Joseph found favor. Joseph had success. He's a slave in this moment. He's a slave in the household of Potiphar, and it says that he prospered, that he found favor, and that he had success, and that the blessing of God was on everything that Potiphar had. That because of Joseph, everything that Potiphar had was blessed. God uses Joseph's life as the source of blessing for the one who has him enslaved. He uses Joseph's life. See, I think what we have to realize when we look at the story of Joseph is that God is not just looking for people who can dream. God is looking for people that he can trust with his favor in any circumstance. A lot of people can dream. A lot of people can have a vision for the future. A lot of people can have big plans and big goals. But the real question is, can God trust you with his favor in any situation? So often, it's interesting, the the language of Christianity, the language of followers of Jesus so often is, God, destroy my enemy. God, take my enemy out. God, make my enemy's life so miserable that they turn towards you. And yet in this moment, Joseph's life is actually blessing the one that has him enslaved. I wonder what would happen if instead we prayed, God, would you use my life to be such a blessing to the people around me that they cannot deny your existence? God, would you use my life in every circumstance in such a way that it points towards you? Would you use my life as proof of your existence? See, we, we, we gloss over things so easily, but in chapter 39, verse 3, it says, when his master saw, his master who did not believe in the same God as Joseph, his master who would have followed the Egyptian gods, when he saw the way Joseph operated, He saw something different. When he saw the way Joseph operated in impossible circumstances, he saw the favor of God on Joseph's life, and ultimately he sees God. Ultimately he sees what God is doing through the life of Joseph, whose life is bringing blessing on the very one that has him in slavery. I would ask yourself, does my life bring blessing to the people around me? Does my life bring blessing to the people around me? Not just in the circumstances that I would choose, not just in the situations that I would choose, but in every circumstance, does my life bring blessing to the people that are around me? And we see that even through this horrible circumstance, Joseph is faithful to God. Joseph is receiving the favor of God and it's blessing Potiphar's house. Surely Joseph's blessing is on its way. Surely Joseph's blessing is next. And yet what we find next in the story of Joseph is that Potiphar's wife deceives Potiphar, tells Potiphar that Joseph tried to essentially come on to her, and Potiphar throws Joseph in jail. So if you're following along, Joseph has gone from a place of prominence in his family to a pit. Then he's gone to a place of prominence in his vocation to a prison. It's a real roller coaster. If you feel like your life is a roller coaster, if you feel like it's constant up and downs, that is not an indication that you are not on the path God has for you. And so he finds himself in prison. And in Genesis chapter 39, verse 20 through 23, it says this, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. 
He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord was with him. We hear that phrase at the beginning of this story as he gets into Potiphar's house, and then we hear it three times there as he is in prison. See, the Lord was with Joseph in the prominence of Potter's house, and the Lord was with Joseph in prison. So often, the mistake that we make is we think that what is happening to us is an, is an indication of God's love for us. But what we have to realize is that God's favor has nothing to do with our circumstance and everything to do with his presence. It has nothing to do with our circumstance and everything to do with his presence. The Lord was with him. Joseph is constantly changing the world around him no matter what his circumstance is, no matter what his circumstances. He's changing the world around him. You know, I, I don't look at a brand new married couple on their honeymoon posting Instagram pictures and be like, man, they're happy. They're going to make it. There's, there's no way they're going to make it. They're going to do just fine. No, because they're on their honeymoon. They're in those first few weeks. But man, I look at a couple who walks through hell together and walks through the worst nightmares you could ever walk through, and they're still hand in hand. They're still making it. Those are the couples I look at, and I say, they're going to make it. They're going to make it through this. See, often our circumstances are such a witness to those people around us that God can use them so that they see God in those moments. Joseph is the slave of a slave of a slave, and he's in prison. He's lost every position he could have had. He lost every sense of authority he could have had. He is in prison. But God does not need you to have a position in order for you to prosper. Sometimes we think, man, if God can get me in the right position, he can prosper me. But God can prosper you in the pit. God can prosper you in prison. God can prosper you wherever you are because he is with you. If there was ever a moment for Joseph to give up on the dream, this would have been it. If there was ever a moment to say, man, that, I must have missed something those nights. Those nights that I had that dream, I must have missed something because there's, there's no way that I get from this prison to the place of prominence that I saw in that dream. There's just no way. This would have been the moment for him to give up. But see, it teaches us an important lesson, which is we cannot allow our current circumstances to define God's love for us. We cannot allow our, our current circumstances to justify giving up on the life that God has for us. See, sometimes we walk through such unthinkable circumstances that the easiest thing to do would be just to give up on what we think God had for us. That surely we must have fallen too far into the pit. Surely we must have fallen too far into the prison for God to use us, for God to use or to get us to our dreams. But what we know is that God was with him. So we've got to keep going. We have to keep serving where we are, keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep blessing the people around us regardless of the situation that we're in. Keep serving right where we are. See, what's interesting is that the Bible says God continued to bless Joseph in anything that he did. It, it, this, this is encouraging to me because I've always been one of those people that I'm like, God, I want to know exactly what you want me to do. Tell me exactly what you want me to do, and then I'll do it. But sometimes I think we get so obsessed with finding out exactly what God wants us to do that we do nothing. And we just wait while God is asking us to begin to take steps. 
It should lift a bit of a heavy burden to say, God prospered Joseph in anything that he did. Because that means if you are following Jesus, if you are following him, if you are on the path that he has for you, then he's going to prosper you right where you are. That he's going to help you find prominence right where you are. That he's going to help you in anything that you do. This is so often we think, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the one thing that God has for me. I'm going to miss the one thing that God has for me. And I think so often God is saying, listen, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And wherever you are, I'll use you right there. Don't, I'll get you to the ultimate end. I'll get you to the dream. It may not look like what you thought it would look like. It may seem like there are detours. It may seem like there are setbacks. But I will get you there if you keep putting one foot in front of the other. The world around Joseph is being changed by his presence because God is with him. Because God is with him, the world is being changed by Joseph's presence. Isn't it interesting that so often we question whether we can actually trust God with our lives. We question whether we can actually trust God to work out the details of our lives. We question whether we can actually trust God to get us out of the situation that we're in, to get us to the place that he has for us. We question whether we can trust God with his lives, with our lives. What we should really do is begin to question whether God can trust us with his favor. God, can you, can, I, can you trust me with your favor in every circumstance, God? Can you trust me to stick close to you even when I find myself in the pit, even when I find myself in prison? Can, you, can, I, tr- can you, I be trusted with your favor within circumstances that I would never even ask for? Growing up, early in my life, I loved math. I loved math. I absolutely loved it. I went through school. I loved math. And then I got into like middle school or early high school, whenever you do consumer math, where it's like percentages and like real world stuff. I loved it even more. I loved math. Then I got to algebra. And I hate algebra. I absolutely cannot stand algebra. I don't know why. I don't understand algebra. Even easy algebra equations, I'm like, no, I don't know. I can't get it. There's, there's letters in there. What am I supposed to do with that? And so when I got out of high school, I went to college, and I, I was studying theology and music. And I was like, surely there will be no algebra. There can't be any algebra in this. There, there just can't be. And then I get to college, and I found out there's one algebra class that I have to take. And so I do what you do when you can, and I delay it. I don't take it the first semester because I didn't have to. And so I was like, I'll take that second semester. I'm going to enjoy first semester. And so I get through the first semester, and I have a great semester. In fact, in high school, I didn't really do well because I didn't really care. I just kind of phoned it in in high school. For some reason, in college, I was like, okay, I'll turn it on. And so I did pretty well my first semester of college. Then came the algebra class. And the teacher insured me early in the semester. He's like, this is an easy algebra class. Like, you just have to pass this one algebra class for your major, no problem. It was a problem. I could not pass any test. I could not get past this class. I could not figure it out. I hate algebra. I was doing so poorly that my algebra teacher actually pulled my records to see if I was just a bad student, just to see if it was like, hey, this guy's phoning it in. And I had great grades in every single class. And so the day we went to take the final, I walked into the final knowing that I would need a 98 on the final to pass the class. I thought about not even going. But I showed up, and I sat down to take the test. I was about halfway through the test, and the teacher, true story, pulls me out of the class, and he takes me in the hallway, and he says, listen, what do you want to do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a musician. I'm going to do music like in the church and then, you know, maybe pastor. But, and he was like, are you sure? 
And I was like, yes, that's, I mean, those are my majors. That's what I'm going to do. And he was like, tell no one, but I'm going to pass you (laughs) because you will not need this. (laughs) And so he passed me and I've never needed it. I truly have never needed it. But I remember one thing from algebra. I, I remember one thing from algebra that stuck with me through that entire class, and that's that in algebra, there is a variable called a constant, and the constant is a fixed value that does not change regardless of what happens to the other variables in the equation. God's presence is the constant in our lives. God's presence is the constant in the story of Joseph. God's presence is the thing that regardless of all of the other variables, regardless of whatever else is put into the equation, God's presence does not change. The constant remains the same regardless of what happens to the other variables, whether it's in the promotion, whether it's in the pit, whether it's in the prison, whether it's in the wilderness, God's presence is the constant throughout all of Scripture. It is unchanging regardless of the other variables. Now, that's difficult because it would be really nice for us if promotion was the constant. It would be really nice for us if certainty was the constant. It would be really nice for us if comfort was the constant. But God's presence is the constant. And the good news is that if God's presence is the constant, we can't really mess up the equation. That no matter where we find ourselves, even in those moments where you feel like you misstepped, even in those moments where you find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, God's presence is the constant in your life. God prospered Joseph in everything that he did. But see, the key is that we have to recognize that God's presence is the constant in our lives. We have to recognize that God is with us in the pit. We have to recognize that he's with us in the prison. We have to recognize that he's with us in the wilderness. But that means we also have to recognize that if God's presence is the constant, that means that occasionally there will be variables in the equation that we don't like, that we would not choose. Have you ever found out that there's an ingredient that you don't like in a recipe for something that you love? Like you find out that there's something in the thing that you eat that you actually don't like. My mom made this cake growing up our entire life. It was my favorite thing she made. We called it coffee cake. There was no coffee cake in it. I mean coffee in it. I don't understand things. But my favorite thing about this cake was I loved to eat the batter of this cake. Are there, where are my people who like to have a little bit of the batter before you cook it? Yes, yes. I don't understand the rest of you. But the batter to this cake was like nothing else. Like from, those, from as long as I could remember when I was a child, I'd be like, give me that beater from the mixer and I'm going to eat that. I'm going to eat the batter. I love it. And I remember I was in like middle school and I remember I was taking spoonfuls of the batter sometime. And my mom, I was like, I don't know what it is about this batter. I just love it. And my mom was like, it's the sour cream. And I was like, what? In a cake? That just didn't seem right to my like child brain. I was like, sour cream? I hated sour cream as a child. Hated sour cream. If I got something that had like the smallest bit of sour cream on it, like you would think I would just like curl up. I hated sour cream. I loved the cake, but I didn't like any, everything in it. I loved the final product, but I did not like everything that went in it. Because there's some things that if we just had to have them on their own, would be so bitter. There's some things that if we had to just have them on their own would make us recoil and step back. 
But we have to see the full picture that it's not the whole thing. I would not to this day lick a beater full of sour cream. I still don't really like it. I'm an adult, so sometimes I have to force myself to eat it if someone presents me with something that it's on it, but I don't like it, and I'm probably going to complain about it on the way home. (laughs) But it was an ingredient in something that I actually loved, and there is this equation in Scripture that I see over and over again, and I do not like one of the variables. I wish I could remove one of the variables from this equation. This is it. Wilderness plus presence equals power. Wilderness plus presence equals power. Throughout scripture, whenever we see the wilderness, we also see the presence of God manifesting itself in power. The children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, but it's the presence of God that supplies their everyday needs. And even in Luke chapter four, when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan, it says in chapter four, verse one and two, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. I love that it tells us he was hungry because it would be really easy to be like, yeah, it's Jesus. He can go 40 days without food. But it says, no, he went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit and hungry. And then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan. And in verse 14 and 15, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went into the wilderness full of the spirit and hungry. He came out of the wilderness power empowered by the spirit and feeding other people. It says he immediately went into the synagogues and began teaching. He immediately began serving others, feeding others. The wilderness actually did not diminish the power, the, the Spirit's power in Jesus' life. It actually increased it. It actually empowered him. It said he went in full of the Holy Spirit, but he came out empowered in the Spirit. See, sometimes when you walk through the wilderness with the presence of God, you come out empowered to serve others in a way that you would have never expected. When you walk through the wilderness and you recognize the presence of God, what should deplete you actually empowers you because the enemy always overplays his hand. The enemy will always come out in a way that he thinks will diminish you, that he thinks thinks will tear you down, that he thinks will knock you out, and then you will find yourself empowered and elevated to serve people in a new way that you never could have imagined on your own. But you have to recognize that the presence of God is with you. That's what we see happening in the life of Joseph. Not once, not twice, three times it says the Lord was with him. See, if it had only said the Lord is with him at the beginning of the story, by the time we got to the prison, by the time we got to the false accusations, by the time we got to the loneliness, we would assume God is no longer with him. And so in those very verses, twice again, it says God is with him. God is with him. Because we need reminding that even when the circumstances get worse, God's presence is still with us. If we were just reading that story and started to read those circumstances, we would assume the presence 
presence of God is lifted. He's outside the will of God. He's outside where he's supposed to be. And yet twice it reminds us God's presence was with him. And maybe you're in a wilderness season right now. Maybe you feel like you're in that pit. Maybe you feel like you're imprisoned right now in addiction and things that you never thought you could get out of. Maybe you're in a pit of circumstances that you would have never chosen. And you need to be reminded that God is with you. There's no question. It's a constant. God is with you. There's no question. You may not feel it. You may not recognize it, but that doesn't, the the good news is that your memory, uh, you, you remember your memory of where God is does not determine whether or not it's true. You may need to be reminded. You may have forgotten, but God's presence is with you. I don't know if you've ever had the injury that's like the worst injury that you can get as a child, which is to get the wind knocked out of you. I mean, you feel like it's over. You fall off those monkey bars straight on your back and you can't get your breath and all your friends, you okay? And you're like, no. It's like the worst injury there is. When you're in the pit, you, you feel like you've got the wind knocked out of you. You, you feel like you're never gonna be able to get your breath again. You feel like you're never going to be able to inhale again. You're never going to be able to feel your, you feel like that's the end. When you're in that pit, when you're in that moment, you have to take a minute. You have to take a minute. I'm not asking you to be on your back with no breath in your lungs. Be like, that's okay. God's with me. Take a minute. Get your breath back. Take a minute and get your breath back. You've had your, the wind knocked out of you. Take a minute and get your breath back. But when you have it, when you have that breath back, remind yourself that God is with you. Whether you're in prominence, whether you're in promotion, whether you're in the pit, whether you're in prison, this is the good news. God doesn't just see you. God is with you. There's a difference. God doesn't just see you. God is with you. Sometimes we say God sees you in your suffering. God sees you in your pit. No, he's with you in your suffering. He's with you in your pit. There is a difference between God being present with you and a casual bystander watching your life unfold. That is not the God we serve. The God that we serve is a God who steps into your suffering. He steps into your pit. He steps into your prison and his presence is there with you. And he went to such great lengths to be with us that he sent his son to join in our suffering, to take on our suffering, to take on our pain, to take on our sin, to take on those things that should take us out, to take on our sin and our prisons, the things that hold us in bondage. He sent his son to take on those things so that he could be Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's good news for somebody in this room this morning to be reminded God doesn't just see you. God is with you. He's walking with you no matter what your circumstances are. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning?